Welcome to the Mindful Literacy Podcast. This podcast is for teachers and parents who want to gain knowledge, perspective, and inspiration in the areas of literacy education and special education. Episode topics tend to focus on dyslexia, ADHD, literacy education, and mindful teaching. This podcast was created to build awareness for our nonprofit, Mindful Literacy Columbus. Check out the show notes to learn more and to get involved. Welcome to the Mindful Literacy Podcast. I am sitting with Jen Jones of Hello Literacy. Welcome, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I you are one I have to tell you, you're one of the first people I started following when I started a social media account for Mindful Literacy. Um, your content is just so crisp and clear and motivating and inspiring. And I can't wait to hear about, um, how you help teachers develop professionally. And it looks to me like you also help personally, you know, you're always surrounded by teachers who at conferences who are smiling and happy and you get great testimonials and everything and all things to do with literacy instruction. So what a great partnership you and I are forming. And I thank you for your friendship. Yes, absolutely. I've loved meeting you and talking with you over the last few weeks. I'm looking forward to what we're growing together. Sure. So for those who maybe aren't following you yet, can you give us an overview of you and of Hello Literacy? Yeah, absolutely. So Hello Literacy was, is a, is my company now. It wasn't anything that I ever dreamed or imagined when I started teaching 28 years ago. Um, I went to college um, in California, have a bachelor's degree in English and psychology and I became a post-baccalaureate in elementary education, and I taught first grade, second grade, third grade, <clears throat> and I was in the classroom for, oh gosh, a good, you know, nine, ten years, um, trained in reading recovery. Um, I became a literacy coach for a very large school district here in North Carolina, and then when technology evolved, I started a blog in 2009 called Hello Literacy um, Dot com And I started blogging about the best practices that we were implementing in the brand new school building that we were um, opening here in our in our home county growing. It grows. It's a very large growing district. And so they build about five new elementary schools per year. And so I was a part of opening that brand new school and being a literacy coach there and the RTI coordinator. And like that's when Common Core was new. So there was lots of new things. And so we were like basically designing the school the way we wanted best practice instruction to be. And so I was blogging about that. And after I was blogging about that, um, I started getting emails from schools and districts sort of around the country saying, hey, could you kind of come do for our school what you're doing for your school? And at the time I was like, uh, please hold, like I work full time. I don't really, that's not really like an option right now. And then the more and more I started getting these types of emails, I was like, wow, maybe this could be an option. Maybe I could go out and do this professionally for other schools and districts beyond my own little sphere of influence. So that's really how it got started. And the day I resigned, my principal said, why are you leaving? You can't leave. And I said, the reasons I'm leaving are waiting in my inbox. 
and I've never looked back and it's just been, it's been a, it's been a blessing. Um, I've worked really, really hard, especially over the last 10 years with, um, busting, you know, busting, bustling and hustling all over the country and making products. And remember my children were in, um, school, middle school and high school. My husband would do the grocery shopping, make dinner, put the kids to bed, read to them while I was making TPT products. So while it might, while my chapter 20 might look like I have, you know, I have this great lifestyle now, I've really worked hard for that. And it is a gift that I have given myself because time is so premium that we have to, you know, everybody has the same amount of it. And so we all get the same 24 hours and we make choices about how we're going to spend that time. So I've, you know, that's what I do now and I love it. So I never, I'm a, I'm like a type A work workaholic type person. So even though like I'm not in a school district, I feel like I work harder um, now, but it's really, really interesting because I feel like when you don't have your business and you, you would know this, Jessica, now that you have your own business as well, um, there's a lot of teachers who will work harder for a principal or a school or a district than they will for themselves if they were their own boss. So you always have to ask yourself, am I working harder for somebody else or am I working harder for myself? So we want to we want to put those same work standards on ourselves that we would as if we were, were working for a school or district. Yeah, I I definitely am and have always been a team a team player. So I, you know, I use this analogy of row, you know, I was on a rowing team in college for Ohio State and there's no way I would like it physically hurt to pull that hard in a boat for seven and a half minutes. But for my teammates in front of me and behind me, of course I will pull hard. Um, I think that's partly why I feel so grateful that you're sharing your time with me and the audience today. Um, because I think the work that we want to do in the world can't be done alone, you know, in isolation. And it has to be done in a community of people who have the same baseline of understanding of what best practices are for kids and how to do that um, in a way that impacts their lives for the better. Absolutely. I can really have said it better myself. And I feel like people that do in the business for themselves or even teachers that sell on teachers pay teachers, like, <clears throat> like making money is never the outcome. It is never the goal. It is a side effect. When you love what you do and you do what you do because it is it is the right thing to do and it is best for kids and you are sharing best practices because you want excellent, expert, urgent literacy instruction happening in every single classroom. You do what you do day in and day out and you stay up nights and weekends and you still lay awake at night thinking, how am I going to help the teachers help these children? So that's what I do. I love it. You're like a, a, a wind force. <laughs> You know, I, you know, holding everybody <laughs> up. Okay, so one of the things, one of the topics we're going to talk about today, I, and you, I think, are seeing a need for this in the field, in the field, and in your community, is what practices can we do hitting the ground running, going back into the 2021-2022 school year after coming off of virtual learning for 18 months. 
Yeah. So that is such a great question and an answer that I think teachers are really looking for right now. And schools and districts might not even be asking this question. I hope that they are. But if they're not asking this question, I think it's really, really, really important. We aren't post-pandemic, even though we're going back to in-person instruction, it might feel post-pandemic. We are technically still in a pandemic. But going back into in-person teaching and the, the, what's really important about <clears throat> making these really important steps and necessary steps this year, this fall, this summer, is because the instruction that occurred last year, while teachers worked so hard and teachers um, just turned on a dime and pivoted and worked harder than they've ever worked before, um, we don't really have a good measure, like a good measure of a standard of the learning, right? And the reason for that is because while teachers, some teachers were teaching virtually and in person and hybrid, and it was one way one week and one way another week, and it was constantly changing. The reality, I'm afraid, is that kids didn't get the, I like to think of, um, I, can, I, I, coined, I coined this phrase to my friend Katie Garner, who is a professional friend of mine, but she says, walking the path. When kids are in school every single day and they're reading and writing and practicing reading and practicing writing, they're walking the reading and writing path. You know, they're like pounding the path and that path is getting worn out. And during virtual te teaching, I don't feel like the reading and writing path got walked every single day and got worn. And so this year we have to ask ourselves, the kids just, how, how are we gonna go into this year ensuring that that reading and writing path, that we pick up that path back up again on that reading and writing path, not just for the teaching, but for the learning and to know where kids are at. So I have three, three really important, um, really critical steps that I think schools and districts should make. And I really, while I know a lot of teachers are tuning in and listening to this, I really am speaking to schools and districts at this level. And if you are a teacher influencer that has in any way a voice that where your school or district listens to you, then by all means, be that change agent for your school or district to be that voice to bring these three steps to someone that could listen or make change. But the first thing we need to do, I think, is we need to treat tier one like tier two. Because last year, uh, you know, because of the way teaching occurred last year, like, I, I feel like, you know, tier one, traditionally, right, we know tier one is 80% of our students, 75 to 80% of our students are going to um, make gains and reach benchmarks with the, st you know, standard tier one core instruction. But I just don't know. We just don't know with attendance and just so many variables about last year, if that even occurred. And so we know that tier two instruction is more intensive. We also know that good instruction is good instruction at any tier, but we're just going to be more intentional and we're going to be more urgent with those, um, uh, with that instruction to everybody this, this year. With that said, the, we need to, um, we need to do, we need to go back we either need to re continue doing our universal screenings that we've always been doing, or we need to go back and do our universal screenings. So with screeners like AmesWeb or Dibbles or Easy CVM, um, I know a lot of those are just like more more uh, dipstick type uh, um, type screeners where we kind of get like a general idea of where kids are at. 
though that's going to be a great first step. Um, I know AIMSWeb is not free, but I know Dibbles is free, and I know that um, EasyCBM is free. I know a lot of schools subscribe to like North Carolina's moving back to M class, and you know there's map testing. There's different testing that your school or state probably does, but we need to like definitely not drop that piece off. And it's called universal for a reason. It means everybody gets it, not just the ones that you think should get it. Like everybody gets it. And then with that said, in the past, what we've done is we've taken the yellow and red students from that universal um, data. And then hopefully we have done some more diagnostic assessments to sort of dig a little deeper to see where those students are like, where we can plug those holes. And I always tell teachers that a diagnostic assessment is like taking your car into the mechanic and plugging it into the machine and saying, okay, it needs work in these seven areas. Like this is what's low. This is what needs work. This is what needs to be replaced. This is where the holes and gaps are. So it's like sticking your, your car into a diagnostic um, you know, meter. And that's really what we need to do because we don't know where the holes and gaps are with some of these kids. And so like when I say diagnostic assessments, I think the most critical ones for literacy are gonna be like a letter ID test, um, a phonics screener, um, what would be also maybe like a, um, a phonics screener is going to be a good, good to know their decoding skills or decoding holes, but also we're going to want to do some type of like a sentence dictation. So we know where their encoding holes are as well. And I think that we need to just as counterintuitive as it may seem, um, do this with more students than less students. Like I'm going to go out on a limb and say all students like, what, like really like come again post pandemic like let's just see where all the kids are at and you know we can we can create groups we can create skill groups of st what students need based on that diagnostic survey data so i think that's gonna be i think it's really it. so that's really like my number one thing that i think that we need to do what do you think i think it's brilliant i think it's so rich i think it's preventative well yeah, before the gaps get even wider, let's find the gaps. And um, do people, do, do people, not all people do universal screeners still? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, RTI legislation well, and been around for 10, 11 years now, but mm -hmm. you know. I know, I know. So with, so with that too, I think, you know, what you said, and I've seen this too, um, you said tier one, tier treat tier one like tier two, that means that there also needs to be a tier one curriculum in place, like a hundred percent. Well, that's my number three. Oh, okay. That's my, that's really, yeah, that's really my number two. So I'll talk about that next is that, so I always, so one of the things that's really, really important with that now is to go back and do an, what I call an instructional biopsy of your tier one core instruction. Okay. And I have a little sheet. It's like a Google sheet. I'll be happy to share the link with your viewers. Um, it's a Google, it's a Google, yeah, it's, it's in Google Docs. And on the left-hand side, it says whole group instruction. And then there's a, a, a row for small group instruction. And then there's a row for like independent practice. And then across the top are the five areas of reading, phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, comprehension. Then I added a writing column as well. And so as an, it, it's basically an internal audit that we as a school are saying, okay, let's really, really take a look at what we're doing as a school at each grade level 
even with it, we did this at Lake Myra before I left. And it's very eye-opening because even on one grade level, and you would want to do this, like if you were the instructional coach or principal, I hate to say the word principal because I don't want it to seem like it's an evaluative type process because it's really not that. It's more of a reflective process. And that is what, what, when, where, why, all the W questions for each row. So like what, where, why, when, how, with what, with what text, for how long, with who are we doing phonemic awareness? So it's like, you're really asking all the who, what, where, why, and how questions for each area of reading. And then when you do it with a grade level of let's, let's say three, five, or goodness, 10 teachers on a first grade team, lots and lots and lots of times, even on one grade level, you will have discrepancies. And one teacher's like, well, I use this. And another teacher's like, well, I don't use that. I use this. And another teacher's like, I didn't even know about that. Oh, we had that? Oh, I've been using that for years. Like even on one team, right? Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> so I feel like, you know, education, if, we, if we're talking about, you know, if we're talking about equity, you know, giving all kids what they need to succeed, then we need to delivering like a, a, a like a pail, right? Like there's that that quote about like um, do you, um, education is like lighting a fire and you know filling up a pail. Well, we want to make sure that every child on the grade level gets this at least at one school or in one not necessarily in one district. I don't necessarily agree that every school in one district needs the same same. But if you're teaching at one school who's like in one maybe type of neighborhood or in another one across town, maybe a district's like there there are um, schools in West Virginia in um, in the same school district where there's schools in the city and then there's schools like very rural schools and maybe their particular needs might be different. So that's why I say it's going to be based on what your particular school population needs. But at least in one school, like the, all of the kids on the first grade team should be getting a, the same core tier one instruction in all five areas with the same text. Now, what does that require? A lot of communication and a lot of collaboration on the team. The teachers working together and pulling text and identifying good text and planning lessons together and just um, really does eliminate that kind of whimsim, ho-hum, what am I doing today type of teaching that may, may be occurring. Probably not, but may be occurring. Yeah. I was going to, so that's your number two, right? Or you, that's my number two. Number three. Mm -hmm. The instructional biopsy. What's yep, the tier one instruction biopsy. Mm -hmm. Okay, so my question that came up when, when I was listening to you is, um, when do you see teams um, moving the most together? Um, in other words, you know, you were just talking about communication and collaboration, but you've obviously done a ton of coaching too. So is it when teams can have the time to figure out what their next move is? Or is it when teams have a coach to say, oh, I hear this is a need. Here are some options. Which direction do we want to go? Go. And then I'll give you feedback. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So like after this process of the coach asking a grade level, what are you doing it whole group, small group, and independent for independent practice for these five areas. And the teachers have given the input and given specific details. Like, I don't, I wouldn't say that, for example, 
for the fluency column, if a team says, oh, we're doing shared reading to build fluency. Okay, that's a great start, but that's really not a detailed enough kind of compilation. That's a start, but it's not kind of like, like how long and with what and like, what are you working on? And so like you could even kind of at that point use that form as a springboard for then as the literacy coach, I would basically take all of the things that they said. Hopefully they give you lots of details and you have the literacy coach that's saying, okay, tell me more. How long with what? Where are you pulling the poems from? Are you using big books or are they on grade level or below grade level or are they decodables? Are they leveled? Like what, what's the text that you're using or whatever? Getting as many details as you can on that form. And then as the coach, I'm going like, let's say back to my office, like retreating back and then I'm going to aggregate all the data that's on that sheet that they gave me and then compile it all together and give it back to them to sort of look at and read. So while they gave it all to me, I'm going to give it all back to them. And then I'm going to say, <clears throat> okay, let's, I'm going to probably do like some type of a, some type of a data protocol where they're going to like say, what do we see? What do we notice? What are we going to do type of protocol? And then <clears throat> what should we, what are the next steps and let that come from the team and that the next steps would be a prioritized list from the team. Like, what do they think we need to work on first? Or what do they think? Like, hopefully what a team thinks is a, is a prioritized list are things that would make the biggest bang for the instructional buck and make the highest yields for achievement, for, for sure. And I think everybody right now would tell you that um, phonemic awareness and phonics, like those two columns are going to be make, probably making a lot of big bang for your buck switches and changes and shifts to like maybe work on right now. So like maybe that would be it. And then you've heard of the like PLC model or PLT model. And that is based on the DeFore's research of when teams come together, they are, they're answering questions around the four essential questions, which are, what is it we want students to know? How are we going to know when they know it? What are we going to do when they do? What are we going to do when they don't? And those four questions really keep an agenda on track instead of getting derailed, sidetracked, hijacked with other things that are maybe outside their control. So I think that would be like the next kind of steps. And then to really kind of, I think, specifically answer your question, you'd have to have administrative support to make time for those meetings. And like our at our school, we started school at 915. And so from eight to nine fifteen on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays were these team meetings. So like on Tuesdays from eight to nine fifteen um, was like uh, kindergarten, like two teams a day, so that there was coverage in the classrooms because kids were allowed to come into the classroom at eight forty five. So from eight forty five to nine fifteen, there was some class coverage for like two grade levels, and so it just made for an additional half hour of extra planning, not planning time like these essential type professional learning times where we're like really looking at instruction and assessment and intervention and remediation. That is so valuable, that, that time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I was thinking, you know, and I think when we talked earlier, I, I mentioned that I'm going to be doing some professional development, um, starting with some schools this fall. And I've been, and they kind of told me what they needed and I tail, you know, designed the professional development for them. But what I said was I can come in once and, you know, deliver the content, but where you, what really makes a difference in the lives of students in classrooms is when teachers have coaches. So I'd like to do some follow-up and coaching. And my question to you 
I was thinking about this this morning, like, I feel like uh, all teachers should have the opportunity to have a literacy coach, but I don't think all teachers do. I think it's, um, it's uh, a really- It's probably the one, it's probably the one thing that it, it could make the biggest impact if every teacher had, it could make the biggest impact on student achievement, especially when the coaching um, when the coaching is for the teacher, but takes place in the classroom for every other teacher in the room and every student in the room to hear. So, and even if, even if a, even if a coach is being used for student improvement, not necessarily teacher improvement, um, it's still when that, when, when coaches work in the coach's room with one teacher or one student or one group of students, it's like working in a vacuum. Whereas when the coach can do their work with other eyes and ears present, it only elevates the level of instruction for every person that's a witness or listening to that occur. So that's why I'm a huge fan of like push in literacy coaching. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then what you, said, what you said also about, you know, when you leave. So like what's really important, like I did some really good, I mean, I did some really good. That's not what I meant to say, but I did some literacy coaching work in Fulton County in, in Georgia last year, two years ago, I guess, before the pandemic and the literacy, which would be kind of like literacy coaching work, but the literacy coaches needed my coaching of the, of, to do it with the teachers in order for them to know how to do it. So while I was working with the teachers uh, as teams and then individually and then giving feedback to them and then sending students back in the room and then giving feedback to teachers again, as I was doing it, the literacy coach literally sat right by my side every time I did this. So like when we were in like the conference room doing great, doing grade level type coaching, I would do, and we did like on their planning time throughout the day. So there was like six, maybe six throughout the day. I would do, I would run the first two meetings. And then by the third one, at the last 15 minutes of it, I would turn to the, the coach and I would say, is there anything that you'd like to add or share or insights? So she felt a little bit more comfortable, like adding to the meeting. And then by the end of the day, the literacy coach was running the last two meetings. So I started them. We overlapped in the middle and then she finished off the day doing them. And we just used that model throughout the rest of the time I was there so that when I leave, she, she's, she's, she's there with support. She's not there unsupported. Like she, she's like, I'm there to support her. But like when you pull me away, she still feels like she can do her job without me. Yeah. I mean, everybody needs a coach, elite athletes. No. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There is a little bit of a stigma with receiving um, literacy coaching, um, which I find ironic because um, unfortunately, the teachers that want coaching usually don't need it. And the teachers that need coaching don't want it. <laughs> and I, that is what I have found. But um, with that said, the, the thing about coaching is that it's, it's and this is what's, this is why the literacy coach should never, ever, ever be in a position of evaluation. A, a, a teacher needs to build trust and be able to lower their ego and leave their ego at the door and know that they might be showing their flaws in front of their coach and to know and be assured that that coach is not going to be running back to the principal to say, oh my gosh, guess what? 
you know, Karen did in her classroom today or whatever. Like a, a, a teacher needs to know that that's not going to happen, that it is a safe place to learn and grow without it really leaving the classroom. And I think that's where the most, most growth occurs as well. So when, when, when we can, you know, kind of get, get, get there to that point, we're going to see a huge rise in our own growth and, and counterintuitively. And, and I mean, and, and coincidentally a huge growth in student um, growth as well. And then, but I just think it's a little bit, a teeny bit ironic that like we expect our students to learn every day, but it's like, Oh no, 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 no. It's, it's not good enough for me. <laughs> it's only good enough for my students. Right. Yeah. No, I was, um, talking with another guest and she was, you know, we were talking, we were kind of philosophizing and was like, yeah, it would be so great if our goal is for all teachers to see themselves as lifelong learners. What a difference that would make in your own, you know, in your own enjoyment and quality of teaching, but certainly in not, not just modeling for kids, but what the power of your learning could do for kids. So you really have to leave the ego at the door because we all know that, those kids are really running the classroom and you're just kind of like <laughs> keeping the lid on a ball of ping pong uh, table. So um, the more, you know, the more you can kind of uh, facilitate, um, facilitate their growth and they don't even know it. I always tell kids, my job is to make learning easier for you. <laughs> like you should, right. you should feel like, Oh, that was so easy. You know? Well, and what a great model and what a great lesson to share and be vulnerable with your students to like when your students say, like a lot of times students will say to me, why are you teaching this lesson to us with a book on your lap? I'm like, I'm still learning guys. Like I'm trying to be better. And like, or they'll say to me, why is Mrs. So-and-so in here? Or why is Mrs. So-and-so teaching us? And why are you watching her? And I'm like, because I'm still learning. Like I'm learning how to be a better teacher today than I was yesterday. Just like you're learning to be a better student today than you were yesterday. Like this is what life is about. Like continuing to be learn and learn and learn. So I think if we can be models for that in front of our students, what, what better example is that? Absolutely. And what, what made me think of the coaching comment of like, man, it would be really great. Every, I think if every teacher could have a literacy coach, what a difference that would make. And what made me think of it was thinking back on, my Orton Gillingham training and I was talking to somebody and they were like, Oh, I just, I really miss, I really miss getting that feedback. And we're talking about experts who are very skilled in teaching kids with dyslexia and when we still need it and want it. And there are still words, you know, that come up when I'm studying with kids and I'm like, you know what? I don't know. We're going to, let me, I have to ask my teacher and let me help. Let me see if they can help me find out the answer to that great question you just asked, you know? Oh, I mean, absolutely. And I love that you said that so much because even with the universal screening and the diagnostics that we do, and even the formative assessments that occur in the classroom, or even the sort of weekly assessments or the inventories that we do on a regular basis with our students, we often forget to give feedback to the students. And who's the one that really needs that corrective feedback the most? The students. <laughs> I mean, I feel like over the last 10 years, since really you know, RTI and standards-based grading kind of became a thing. I feel like in education, we are, we are data rich and information poor. That means we have percentiles and percentages and numbers and levels and letters and, you know, stars and birds and 
all these things on kids, but what's the qualitative information that we need to be giving to students so they know what to do to correct and get better? And if you think about when you got your driver's license, you didn't just drive around with the driving teacher on Saturday for three hours and he said, okay, see you next Saturday. Like you would say, well, what do I need to do to get better? Like he would say, oh, you need to glide into the left lane and you need to brake a little bit sooner and you need to look over your left shoulder and your right. Like they told you actual words of things you needed to do or say or, you know, to get better. And kids want and need that too, just like teachers want and need that too. Absolutely. I love hearing the passion in your voice. It's just great. Um, Okay, so just I'm going to review. The first thing that we can do to hit the ground running this fall is treat tier one like tier two. I still kind of want to unpack that a little more. Um, The second thing is um, taking an instructional biopsy of your core instruction. Jen, what is the third thing? The third thing is really something that teachers, excuse me, that schools and districts can do for right now to sort of equip teachers with some of the phonics knowledge that teachers lack. And that is doing a a school-wide or district-wide book study on the book called Uncovering the Logic of English. So I read that book this summer. I read it all in one day. While I am an English major, I did learn it in college and I have a reading background and a master's in reading. But while I have always taught systematically and explicitly phonics and phonemic awareness, I know a lot of teachers do not. I get that. And I know there's a like a like a big um, uh, like science of reading is really kind of like like it's like a wave and it's coming and I get all of that. But the the five areas of reading like are have always been a best practice like they've never gone out of style right so but and, and but with all of that said with all of that said could schools and districts do a better job of teaching phonics and phonemic awareness systematically and explicitly nationwide yes so get this book in every teacher's hand right now I know my home county here um, in North Carolina, who just passed science of reading legislation, is one of the is this county is the largest county in North Carolina, and they are going to letters train all the teachers, but it's going to take it's a three year rollout. So are those some of those teachers are on the third year, so they're going to have to wait three years, and so and and, and letters training is expensive. It's eighteen hundred dollars a teacher. Um, I'm not saying uncovering the logic of English is a substitute for letters training, but I'm saying it is a $13 per teacher investment that you could get some tools in their hands right now that would give them some of those phonics rules and patterns that would that would sort of fill their teacher cup, their teacher knowledge bucket with things that they might not know that would actually help them this year until the sort of district rolls out their training with that. Um, so I think that's a really low, low cost, low prep, high yield, um, you know, action step to take um, moving into this school year. Uncovering the logic of English. Yes. It's a really fast read. It's a paperback book. While it is really chuck full with basically all the phonics rules and patterns and why, and it's really fascinating. So like you know, I, I see, I'm, I follow a lot of Instagram accounts that are like, you can tell that they're really trying to spread the word about the science of reading. You, you can, you can get that. And one of the things that a lot of the accounts are doing is they're saying what things are and what, what a thing is 
they're not really telling what it does or why to do it. You know, they're not really explaining that part. And I think, you know, students want to know why and teachers want to know why too. They're like, well, well, why should I put this up? Or why should I do this? Or why do kids need to know these six syllable types? Or how is that going to help them read? Or how is that going to help them write? So like getting, getting, getting sort of like getting wading through sort of like some of the political noise that's out there, kind of getting through all of that and getting down to the nitty gritty of like, okay, so this is what we should do, but why? Like, why should we do it? And helping teachers understand, because teachers can always teach and implement what they understand why they're doing, just like students will, you know, understand, implement something or learn something if they know why they're doing it. And it's a generational, I think. I think everybody wants to know why now, for sure. So this book does that. And it talks about, you know, in there about how, you know, words in the English language, you know, don't end in certain letters. And like I was in Louisiana this, this, this year, this summer when I finished that book, cause I read the whole thing on the plane and I got, got, got off the, um, the air, airplane and I rented my car and it was like, blah, 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 Bayou. And it's like B-A-Y-O-U, right? So English words don't end with you. And I'm like, that's because Bayou is a French word. So like English borrows, borrows a lot of words from other countries and that's why it may seem like it's not following a rule, but it's not an English word at all. So just lots of really cool things to think about. I think as teachers, we always want to know, I don't know, as a literacy teacher, like I'm a word nerd for sure. Yep. So I love learning that kind of stuff. And so again, the more you know, the more you can teach. So Absolutely. I think it's so important to open up uh, the Pandora's box of wanting to know why. You know, yeah. because students will ask when they see, you know, if you say, oh, this letter says fill in the sound, but, it's not, but except for when it doesn't, it, you know, <laughs> students are, will call you out, you know, and it's good to uh -huh. understand, at least understand and have a resource of how to figure out why. <laughs> yeah. so, and you know what? I love, love, love when kids call you out. You know, instead of being that teacher that just says, well, it just is, it just does, just you just have to memorize it. Like, I love when kids say, well, what about when that shows me they're using their critical thinking skills and they deserve an answer or at least an investigation or exploration into why? And I love that. Yes, me too. I mean, that is that is the whole point of literacy is analytical thinking. <laughs> um, right? Yeah, I mean, something that I I think is important to change our language set when that comes up in real life teaching is to stop saying it's an exception or it just is or memorize it. Cause I think that kind of crushes that um, curiosity, that curious spirit. And it doesn't, it doesn't keep them asking. <laughs> we want them exactly. asking. Yeah. Exactly. The, the common denominator of student engagement is curiosity. So if you can make your, if you can, create lessons where you're con continually making kids curious so that kids want to know and instead of, you know, need to know, then you'll continually hook them in every single time. Right. And I think that's kind of maybe the secret sauce to teaching phonics. I think some people don't like doing it or have bad memories of it as when they were learning how to read, but it doesn't have to be like rote, um, not fun, <laughs> You know, it can be made, it can be made to hook kids in. So, 
Yeah. Well, and I've always been like the type of teacher. I remember when I left the, my last year in the classroom before I went out to be a literacy coach, it was 2009. And I was doing progress monitoring on easy CBM with six of my first graders. And there was nothing more rewarding than them like passing the level or getting, reaching their goal or like really like they, you know, they can take like a, a an octopus home and, you know, put it up on the refrigerator with a magnet. And that gratification is so shallow and short lived compared to the pride and success that they're going to feel on the inside for a very, very long time for seeing the, you know, results of their correlation of their effort and the, and their achievement. And I just, I mean, that, that speaks volumes to me. So, and to them too, as a teacher, I mean, to me as a teacher for them. So. Yeah. There's nothing more magical than seeing a, well, a young elementary student finally get it and be able to read on their own. I mean, there's just nothing more magical to And everyone and every child kind of um, displays this in a different way. You know, some will just try and fail in front of you and and read out loud and make mistakes and who cares. And some won't do it until they can do it perfectly and they know it and they and and they won't do it until they know they can do it on multiple books. (laughs) You know, it's just so cool to see them. To see that fire get lit. Yeah. Yeah. And kids need that same, kids need that same safety net that we were talking about. Um, you know, and that's what growth mindset is all about is just being, you know, like not being afraid to fail and not being afraid to like, look, 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 um, vulnerable in front of your peers. And that's, you know, it gets all, and again, it gets back to creating a safe, loving, nurturing environment in your classroom where kids feel like they can be that way without getting laughed at or made fun of. Yeah, so that's important as well. It's, yeah, especially as we don't always know if kids are, you know, and I'm just, I'm in my mind, like we're talking about early literacy skills, beginning literacy skills. We don't always know when kids are going to have a reading disability. That K to three band, mm-hmm. we do the universal screenings so that kids don't slip through the cracks. Sometimes kids hang in, hanging, hang in, kindergarten, first grade, they're okay, they're okay. And then sometimes it really, drops off in second or third grade. So um, keeping your finger on the pulse in that positive environment and understanding that every kid has um, a different timing sequence of Mm -hmm. mastering the skills within the benchmarks is really important. Absolutely. I have one. I want to. I want to go back to the first thing you said, which was treat tier one like tier two. I can. I almost like wanted to drop the mic right then and there. And I'm wondering how, like what advice you would give to teams if they were like, oh yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. I want to do that. How do we logistically do it? Because I'm thinking here too, well, the classroom but, requires more time for small groups. And- yeah. I mean, realistically, um, it may not be feasible, but it's definitely worth quoting. I mean, when I I had was actually having a conversation over the 4th of July with a friend of mine who is a school psychologist in another county here in um, North Carolina. And they're friends with my friends with my daughter. And we were just kind of just kind of talking about education right now. 
and we were talking about this, that concept of like treating tier one, like tier two. And we both kind of like our, our brain kind of just like went like aha moment. Like, oh yeah, like that. It's so, so really if, if it, if all it does is jog for you, like a mindset of, whoa, like we need to just not go into the school year as like a ho-hum, another general, just like another school year. Like we need to be more intentional and more specific and more, more explicit and more direct and more uncover more rocks and turn over more leaves and, you know, just be more intentional than we were. That's really kind of what I mean. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's brilliant. So, well, it's just a way for us to really look at this year. Like it's again, not another, it's just not another school year. I mean, it's really a unique situation and everybody, talked last year like are we when school resumes are we going to go back is education going to be changed in any way or are we going to do things differently than we've done them before or but specifically I think we just need to think about things right now because this is a really timely time for us to move back into starting a brand new school year back face to face most most schools are going back in in person and what do we need to do differently right now to make the biggest difference for these kids long-term, like two, th- two to three years worth of long-term instruction. Yeah, and it seems to me if you do it right, so I'm just going to review, treat tier one like tier two, do your universal screener, and go have your toolbox full of phonics and phonemic awareness tools with uncovering the logic of English. Um I foresee and would expect that RTI teams will be more busy. Than they were pre-pandemic, yes. and they, and for a good reason, right? So maybe having yeah. an expectation of, okay, we're going to open our doors, and they're going to be full. <laughs> our days are going to be full, yeah. and that's okay. Yep. And if um, if the there's an RTI team that is doing these with the students that, and the teachers aren't doing it, because a lot of times there is a team that's doing it, and that's helpful for the teacher, but it's not helpful for the student if the teacher isn't aware or doesn't know how to then take that and do something with it. Like it's, it's like now what? So that's going to be important. And then what's also been important is to say, okay, so it's going to be important for teachers to sort of understand the simple to complex skill patterns that occur, like to be, to be able to take that data and say, like a font on a phonics creator and say, okay, our, it, you know, it's not going to do any good to fill a digraph or a diphthong hole if they don't know short vowels. Like we want to continue to use that foundational scale to like seal the holes at the most foundational level before we seal the holes at the more complex level. Yeah. I'm following a scope and sequence is, is really important and helpful in making sure that the foundation is filled in correctly. <laughs> Yeah, I do have a love-hate relationship with scope and sequences. Well, I feel like they're important for our core instruction in tier one and give everybody that good path and roadmap of like where to go and what students need. Again, like Wiley Blevins, huge fan. Um, but in it, it, also on the other side of the coin, like when, when a, a kindergartner comes to the calendar and sees August on the calendar, the A and the U are not doing what they're supposed to do. So are you going to tell that child, I'm sorry, you need to wait until second grade when the AU spelling pattern is on the silk open sequence. Like you're not going to do that, right? No, I so like, <laughs> you heard me say that before, but like in a way, 
scope and sequence is like is like a K two scope and sequence for phonics is like a um, is like all the puzzle pieces where you give them one third of the puzzle pieces in kindergarten, one third of the puzzle pieces in first grade, and the last third of the puzzle pieces in second grade. So we don't we don't want to like hold we don't want let the scope and sequence hold kids back either. You know what I'm saying? Oh, totally. I yes, absolutely. Um, when, when I'm doing remediation of phonics skills with kids with dyslexia, there's a, a scope and sequence if we're doing a traditional Orton-Gillingham style lesson. But what mm-hmm. I find is grade level text introduces those diphthongs and digraphs well before they're, you know, formally introduced on the scope and sequence. So if a child doesn't know, like if they didn't know August, I always explicitly say, A, you can say, ah, and then I might even go into the story of, um, why you do call August, August, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's um, right. You're a little background. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I am, Jen, I'm just really excited. These three things seem very doable, manageable, actionable. And I think like you said, like creates a mindset shift to field coming back into the school year after being virtual. And I think some of the, you know, hopefully some of these practices will stick well after the pandemic is gone. Yes. Um, so yes. That would be a great, that would be a great um, silver lining. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Mindful Literacy Podcast. We are so grateful to have you as part of our community. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow, download, and share this episode. You can also like, tag, and follow Mindful Literacy Columbus on Facebook, mindful.literacy.columbus, and on Instagram at mindful.literacy.cbus. We love creating these episodes and hearing from you. Please remember that the suggestions of our guests and hosts are for information and education only and should not be taken as actionable advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Mindful Literacy. Mindful Literacy is not liable for your decision to implement information from this podcast. May you be inspired and energized and share this love with those in your care. Until next time, may you be happy, healthy, and at peace.